Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, January 16th, 2017, the New Year, New President, Nuclear Button edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual by Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? As well as could be expected in these interesting times. They are cursed indeed. Uh, Cristala can't be here this week. She's tied up with some other part of the day job. I forget the details exactly. But we are happy and lucky to have with us instead David Dunn, who is also a professor of international politics. How are you doing, David? I'm very well, thank you. You may remember that David was last with us uh, as a special guest back in the first half of 2016 when the candidates of the U.S. presidential election hadn't yet been decided and the prospect of a Trump presidency was still confined to the realms of cheese-fueled nightmares. Uh, we, were right, we were right back then about who the candidates would be, but we were wrong about the ultimate winner. Having defeated Hillary Clinton in November, Donald Trump will be inaugurated president this Thursday, January 20th, just in time to give me an extra birthday present. We're going to have a special episode this week devoted to talking about that, pausing only occasionally for hyperventilating panic attacks and crying jags. First, we're going to talk about foreign policy, with the elevation of America's chief Twitter troll to the status of commander-in-chief, what will become of American diplomacy. Second, back home, beyond any policy agenda he may pursue, Trump's many conflicts of interest and hyper-aggressive political style make many worry that he represents a threat to democracy. Is that hysterical, or is it time to break glass and declare emergency for the rule of law in America? On January 20th, Donald Trump will take the oath of office and become 46th president of the United States. In the process, he'll also become commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, leader of the free world, and possessor of the launch codes of the United States' vast nuclear arsenal. As this reality dawns, what does the arrival of a President Trump mean for American foreign policy and the world? One thing most people can agree on is it'll mean a friendlier relationship with Russia, uh, though whether that's because he simply sees eye-to-eye with President Putin or because of more nefarious Russian efforts to influence him is a point of some heated contention. Since being elected, Trump's engaged in a spat with China over his willingness to consider recognizing Taiwanese independence and or start a trade war with the mainland. In the Middle East, he suggested he'll hammer ISIS and give Israel a blank check as regards its occupied territories. Relations with Europe are likely to be colored by his apparent fondness for right-wing populists like the French National Front and the UK Independence Party. The overarching question on many minds is to what extent even an erratic character such as Trump will be socialized by forces at home and abroad to behave something like a normal American president, or whether his unique combination of policy ignorance and rash Twitter pronouncements will throw the world order the U.S. has carefully maintained for 70 years into disarray. Okay, uh, David, let's let's get down to this. We're IR professionals, uh, or of a sort, and uh, that means that we spend quite a bit of our time telling people whenever they get a little too concerned about the capacity of individuals to make crazy bold change that they should you know bear in mind there are structures and institutions internal and external to any given country that that rein people in uh i guess we're going to find out if we're right uh, to some extent because uh, donald trump knows nothing about anything uh, and uh, is prone to making decisions on the fly, some of them potentially very consequential. How big, how bold um, a bunch of changes do you think we, sh- we should be expecting from, from this guy? 
I think we can expect the unexpected. We can expect this guy to break all the rules, and there is a m many mechanisms he's found uh, in order to do that. Uh, there's been many attempts since his election to try and say, don't panic, to try and normalise and, and to explain the multiple ways in which the Constitution and other structures will contain and socialise uh, Trump. Uh, my concern is that, that actually there's no evidence of that whatsoever. And rather than uh, the presidency changing Trump, it's more likely that Trump will change the presidency. And th this is particularly the case with his failure to uh, take intelligence briefings, his failure to actually engage with established figures who have foreign policy experience or, or, or government experience in general. And it's also uh, evidenced by the, the fact that he actually circumvents all the, the normal means of communication with the wider public and chooses to use 140 characters and, and to tweet. What this does is it forces him to, to actually reduce things to a simplistic form uh, that suits very well to, to unformed uh, opinions, to actually to lack of subtlety. But what it also does is allows for massively erratic and, and unchallenged and unvetted uh, venting of whatever he's on his uh, rather less developed mind at any one particular moment. So you alluded there to some of the arguments he's been having with his intelligence services. He spent the last week, um, the week before he is due to become actually president of the United States, engaged in a pretty unedifying back and forth about whether or not he is compromised by uh, Russian interference either with the electoral process or with him directly and whether or not the intelligence services are responsible for allowing that impression into the, the, the public domain. Uh, Russia is the centre, it would seem, of a lot of people's concern about a Trump presidency. Is this going to be uh, a big early move on his part, do you think? Is he going to hand the keys to the kingdom over to Vladimir Putin and totally reorient policy in line with Russian interests? And if he did, what would that mean? Well, first of all, we shouldn't be surprised that he has been insulting the intelligence community. He's been insulting our intelligence for the last two years. Um, oh, boom. You're <laughs> on fire. Uh, but the, the, wider, the more, more important point here is that there's a massive concern on many parts and on many traditional allies that actually uh, he feels that, 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 that Trump can do a deal with Putin. And the suggestion that he, uh, he, uh, from the Sunday Times in the UK yesterday that uh, Trump wants to have a very quick uh, summit meeting in Reykjavik uh, with Putin uh, rings all these alarm bells. Again, th it shows that the, the crassness of his team to try to suggest that Reykjavik should be the venue for that. Reykjavik, of course, was where Reagan met Gorbachev and caused great concern in, in Europe and in NATO generally by virtue of the fact that at that meeting, Reagan uh, offered to abandon all nuclear weapons uh, in, re in return for global disarmament. And many European nations at the time were very concerned. Mr. Thatcher flew to Washington to say, what are you doing on this occasion? Because uh, nuclear weapons are fundamental to our, our security. So Reykjavik has all the wrong symbolism. And for, for Trump to suggest meeting there very quickly also raises the prospect that he would do so without having intelligence briefings, without being briefed on, on what Russia has been about, without actually being briefed on the issues. He, uh, Trump has talked about uh, having a deal on nuclear weapons very early on. Hmm. The concern here is that, that uh, again, those nuclear weapons are fundamental to the security of Europe and to NATO. 
and what exactly has he got in mind? And uh, will the allies be consulted? Will the allies be factored in? None of these things are clear. So already in a very early instance, we have, a f have that fear of great power condominium, of deals done above the heads of the allies without consultation or involvement. Yeah, because there's two issues, as always, with Trump in parallel, right? There's to the extent that we can get our hands on it with any solidity, there is some policy content here, which is, is it wise for the United States to attempt to have a more positive, fruitful, uh, less escalatory and hostile relationship with Russia? Maybe, maybe not. One could debate the merits of that. And But then secondly, there's the question, is it wise for a new president notorious for his lack of even rudimentary policy knowledge to attempt to convene a major summit within two weeks of taking office with the aim of totally reorienting decades of American grand strategy. It, I, I think most of us would probably suspect that seems a little hasty, even if you thought there was something worth doing in his policy agenda. And that's probably going to be a, a constant running theme of this presidency, trying to separate out the wisdom of any given thing that he happens to do from the question of whether or not there's just such a degree of you know, procedural chaos and basic irresponsibility surrounding how he goes about things. But, but there's almost a degree to which there's, a, there's an impetuousness there that I want to go and talk to, uh, to Putin before the experts tell me that I can't. Mm. Uh, almost as if I know better instinctively, no matter what the experts or the intelligence or, or whatever else there is out there. So the haste strikes me as, as, as part of, 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 of uh, an approach which mm. seems to be in defiance of the institutional knowledge or the institutional advice that might come to him. Right. You've got to, I've got to get this done fast before anyone tells me why it's a really, really terrible idea because I wouldn't want Indeed. that getting in the way. Well, I, I think you put your finger on it, but I think it's even worse than that in a way because it's like, it's like you've got a shouty guy in the pub, which you encounter here, and he's got attention deficit disorder. So he's shouting one thing, which is like, build the wall! And another thing, uh, have a summit and another thing uh, what's to say about climate change and, another, and, and it's like this immediate like throwing things up on the wall it's bad political jazz which I've said before now okay what's wrong with that as you, as you put it and that is when you approach a serious issue like US-Russian relations or like climate change or the future of NATO then those are difficult issues we know that working with it and we also know that the logical way to approach it is to talk to colleagues, is to talk to people about what we think might be a productive way forward. But David said this is you know unpredictable. It's absolutely unpredictable because this is unlike any other president I've observed, and I don't think it will change once he takes the office, which is he honestly, he has no filter. Mm -hmm. He has no filter. I think this is a brilliant idea. I'm going to go on Twitter and I'm going to say this. Or alternatively, so-and-so... Um, doesn't like me. I'm going to go on Twitter and say this person's an idiot. For and his latest is to actually accuse the CIA director John Brennan of leaking the uh, uh, the intelligence dossier, claiming Trump Russian links, which mm. is pretty high level charge. 
to lay right. against someone who is head of one of your federal agencies. Because, because like, like his claims about facts seem to be entirely determined by his feelings about yeah. people. That's one of the things. Like when he is upset with the intelligence services, he will make all sorts of claims about their operational competence and the things they have or haven't done. And then he will reverse those claims if he's feeling happier with them on a given right. day. So there's no distinction in his mind between something being true and something being a convenient charge for him to hurl at someone he's pleased or displeased no. with. So the only way that this works to move from a you know to move from his thought bubble to a policy, um, which puts me slightly different. I'll explain why from David. I'm not quite as pessimistic because of this. Is that he is that he has to have no opposition. That's the only way it becomes a policy because the first time he faces opposition to something, then Trump's tendency is to put his back up and say, well, you know. Why, you know, why are my intelligence services saying this? Or, how, you know, we need to have responsible thought in the military. Mm-hmm. And you guys know that once someone moves to actually become your president, it's not necessarily uh, his way or the highway. Um, so I expect why I slightly different from David and put this back to you is that we're talking about a presidency rather than a president. And I think the ability of the military or the ability of state or the ability of the intelligence services to contain Trump or to box him in. So I suspect there are a number of people who are on the phones today saying, you know, you can't meet President Putin and you can't be making sweeping proposals on nuclear arms. So that's just not the way it works. He'll get mad. He'll get frustrated. But then again, given that he's got attention deficit disorder, he'll be on to some other proposal tomorrow, which might be, you know, uh, let's get rid of the one China policy because, gosh, they're they're ripping off our country. And then well, the process starts over again. My concern with that analysis is that he has a record, which he demonstrated during the campaign, yeah. of sacking whole teams of people. Or actually, if he didn't get advice or didn't get the support or didn't get acquiescence from people around about him, that he would seek the, the advice of others. And the presidency, even uh, given the, the, the officers of state that surround him, has multiple sources of, of people to, who he could become sounding boards for, or in his case, yes men to his particular agendas. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's possible that either he dismisses people or he just calls shoulders people who actually don't support his particular view on a particular issue. I partially agree with that. I partially agree with that. And I think... Uh, my conclusion will be, by the way, that what we're going to have is a divided administration. Yeah. Rather than actually Trump wreaking damage, there's going to be absolute chaos within the administration, which is not a good thing. But We already see that. I mean, if you look at yeah. the, the confirmation hearings, you've, you've got uh, Trump and Tillerson taking one position because they have no foreign or military experience. Yeah. And you've got uh, Pompero and uh, uh, Mattis taking another position because they have got experience of dealing with the Russians. Exactly. That's the point I want to put to you. So the idea that Trump could just simply dismiss... Um, when I look at someone like General James Mattis, who has the, the decades of experience, who's defense secretary, um, I think it would be difficult for Trump to just simply disp- to get rid of Mattis. If he does, he's going to have an almighty fight with his military, with his generals. And therefore, already we've seen that on the Iran deal, for example, that Trump's instinct, which is rip it up, Mattis has already pulled him back from that. And I think Mattis has also pulled him back from, you know, yeah, we can torture anybody we want. Um, I think... However, and again, this is where I sort of partially show you concern. You look at national security advisor like Michael Flynn, who I think is completely unreliable um, and who I think is just simply there because Trump thinks he's in lockstep with Flynn. They both think Russia can be jolly good. That, that's going to be a real problem. I, the military versus the National Security Council is going to be a scrap pretty soon. 
But then there's another level, let me put it to you, David. That is, we tend to talk about these things as a president, but then the heads of agents. Are we going to see a mutiny by working staff within the Pentagon, within state, within uh, CIA, within FBI? Uh, because they simply say, we're not going to basically take the orders of this guy who's up at the top. And if so, what does that do to someone like a Tillerson, mm-hmm. the State Department? Mm-hmm. Um, I got no answers, but what I'm foreseeing is that the danger for me is not that we get a defined American policy that sends us all to hell, but we get uncertainty that can be exploited by others, including the Russians. Yeah, my concern is that, that what will happen is rather like to actually happen during the Vietnam War, yeah. where, where a lot of people just left and were replaced by people who are less competent and people who uh, were more willing to tour the government line. And therefore, the institutional knowledge of the institutional resistance left in protest, and what you had as a replacement by inexperienced and, and more ideologically uh, in-tuned people. And that could be massively problematic as well. I agree with that. Again, uh, you can see that happening, but I think paradoxically, because Trump is so different, you may get people who are going to be resolved to stay on. Um, and fight the fight against him. I mean, if I can try and weave away yeah. uh, b- between the two of you here, because I think there's, there's, there's elements of correctness t- to both. It's that if the office of if, if someone who is the president of the United States decides that they absolutely want to do something, uh, such is the nature of the chain of command. That although there is all sorts of pressure that uh, normative appropriateness and institutional respect and common sense tells you you ought to abide by, it is possible to force through any crazy nonsense that comes into your head. But you can only do that with a relatively small number of issues that you give intense focus to. Trump and intense focus are not concepts that we tend to associate Mm. together. So you've got to think there's going to be um, an enormous amount of jockeying to get control of the various policy areas that he is not capable of scrutinizing or paying attention to over the course of the time ahead. And if he decides to do something stupid in one area, then uh, waving a shiny thing at him somewhere else in the structure of government to get him away from it will likely become... Um, you know, priority number one for, for insiders, right? That's right. Um, but the, the nature of his comments that are so far out of line with the established practice and established policy is to be destabilizing mm-hmm. across a whole variety of things. He doesn't necessarily even have to follow through on all of his policies right to the nth degree. But, what he, but in making the statements that he's made, mm-hmm. he actually causes instability, and that can have policy consequences right down the line. The ripple effect of, of his tweets are massive and massively destabilizing yeah, no. in a whole variety of different Because no. the public statements, I guess, are, are, are something that he can do instantly, that there is no need to work through the institutions to make happen. And that makes me wonder, to what extent will other countries be able to, to factor that in? We had the madman doctrine uh, under uh, you know, Cold War days, which is where you know, the character uh, projected by a leader is that they are insane or unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, to what extent do others then start to factor in their calculation, this is mm-hmm. what you might be to how they treat you? With Trump, one suspects there might be the idiot doctrine, which is that like, if this is someone who is known to be super poorly informed about policy issues, who mouths off, who says nonsense uh, that he really shouldn't because it's poorly thought through or not not um, in line with long-established and important diplomatic principles. Do other countries respond to that the same way they would to 
a thought through meaningful and aggressively intended change of policy? Or do we end up in this weird world where the governments of other countries essentially treat the president of the United States like a shouting guy down a pub who may yes. or may not mean half mm. of what he says, and then like they have to continue to do business with their interlocutors further down the chain of command? This is classic uh, Schelling, Thomas Schelling's work on deterrence and the, and the role of the madman within that. And whether you, if, if you are mad, you can affect one response from your opponent, or even if you pretend to be mad, you can affect that. Mm. But the problem with this, and I think, I think there will be a degree to which given we have a petulant brat in the White House, uh, what we have to do, what the rest of the world has to do, is to respond uh, and try and minimise the impact and recognise what you're dealing with. The problem with that is that we, you know, if you have a, a non-rational actor uh, in the, 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 the major power in the world, what happens when that non-rational actor comes against other non-rational actors and North Korea comes to mind, mm-hmm. or even actually just miscalculation on the part of, of, of others who think he's going to go one particular way mm-hmm. And in the end, he changes his mind because he does change his mind so often. Right, because during the election campaign, the the, the phrase that uh, those who essentially wanted to rationalise away a lot of the outrageous stuff he was saying while still being able to support him liked to use with the you should take him seriously but not literally, which is to say, effectively, this is a guy who's going to come out with a bunch of outrageous sounding stuff, but most of it's uh, ill thought through and purely intended for symbolic effect. Don't worry too much about it. That doesn't seem like it's easily translatable to like a tinderbox of sensitivities to which people feel they have to respond uh, for all sorts of reasons in, in the, the realm of international diplomacy. Well, my, my concern is, is that he can make statements that, that, that give a, I mean, make, make clear statements that, that give an indication that he would react in a certain way under certain circumstances, mm-hmm. and that might be over the South China right. Seas, over North Korea, or indeed with Russia, over the Baltic states, or indeed Ukraine. But actually, when a state responded to, the, to his statements in a particular way and acted on them, thinking that he would respond accordingly. He actually may change his mind. He may f- feel that, that in that situation his virility is challenged and he could respond entirely the opposite way. But what that could be is very escalatory. Oh. Right. So what do you mean? Like he, he gives Russia every impression that he means this sort of talk about NATO being obsolete and Russia having legitimate interests in, in the east of Europe and all that, they behave as though that is actually the view of the United States. And then when it turns out that they've overestimated how much leeway they've got, suddenly, suddenly things go well, south he, he said things about the Baltic states and, and whether he would come to their defense, and he's, he's indicated that he would be equivocal with regard to that. That is at a time when the Russians are pumping armored brigades into uh, the... the uh, the, the frontier uh, areas around uh, the Baltic states, they are massively arming, they, they're engaged in a whole variety of activities that are designed to destabilise uh, NATO and NATO support for the, the Baltic republics. And that's a really unhelpful thing to say in this particular juncture. Yeah. But I, again, I come back to oh, a bit of precedent first, and that is in the final months of the Nixon administration, before he was finally pushed out, I believe we were close to this. I mean, Nixon was not stable in those last And drunk months. most of the time. And drunk most of the time. At least Trump doesn't drink. That's something. That's true. But, uh, but people had to factor that in. I mean, yeah. it, that, this was known quietly, not publicly. So we're back in the situation where this is like publicly known that this guy is, as you put it, and you're absolutely right, destabilizing. Um, right. Suppose the Nixon tapes had been being uh, put out via Twitter on right. a daily basis. Yes, exactly. uh, I suspect that would have had some yeah. of something of an impact on yeah. international yeah. diplomacy. But so what I would expect is is that you're going to see people, you're going to see realignments in the sense to try to get around Trump. So, for example, American institutional, uh, you know, military 
intelligence State Department, will be talking to European counterparts or counterparts in Asia, right? To say, okay, well, this is what we really think is happening. NATO will probably act very clearly by giving reassurances to the Baltic states, precisely because Trump is out there as a wild card. So what I think is, is it's not good we have this instability, but it'll be interesting that I think powers will try to, to react in ways which in the short term limit what can Trump can do and in the long term probably say a lot about American power and the fact that you can no longer rely on American power as being a stabilizing influence. It's, it's massively destructive of American power yeah. uh, and, and indeed perhaps, perhaps even the power of the presidency to, to a degree. Uh, and it's really interesting, there's a piece in the paper yesterday mm-hmm. uh, saying that, that, that MI6 is very concerned about uh, um, its intelligence being passed to the CIA and from the CIA to Trump. And especially if he's going to be seeing Trump on a, uh, uh, put in on a one-to-one basis, the concern is that 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 uh, the security of agents that work for MI6 in Russia could be compromised, and there was an implication that the CIA would limit what they give Trump for fear that he would blab. Well, since he doesn't read intelligence briefings, we may be okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we should we should wrap this item up. But the 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 last thing I guess I'd want to say is that it's such a weird situation that we seem to be about to enter into, where like for quite a long time we've had discussions about the extent to which the United States would be capable of maintaining this international order that it spent so long building, um, and whether or not. Rising powers and a diminishing U.S. capacity would would make that to varying degrees possible or less possible. It never really entered our heads, certainly not mine, that the United States would actually want to <laughs> preserve this existing world order. But uh, it would seem very much like uh, the biggest challenge to the maintenance of liberal international order will be a complete, very rapid uh, evaporation of American interest in in doing so, which... Uh, you know, I guess those who said you should watch out for intentions because they can change quickly will certainly be able to uh, uh, claim that they had a point with this one. Well, it's, it's extraordinary the degree to which there has been a wholesale attack on every institution of the liberal order, every trade deal, every trade institution, uh, every every practice of trade, uh, the established uh, vehicles of international order, uh, NATO, the EU, and uh, American continent, uh, NAFTA, uh, the United Nations, they're all under assault by uh, the, the election of this know-nothing candidate. You know, more than 40 years ago, it was an American comic strip called Pogo, you know, which said concisely, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Mm-hmm. Or rather, he is the Donald. Okay, it's time for the number of the week round where we take a digit fished from the news, uh, link it to a story, and give you a minute or two of jibber-jabber about it. Scott, what have you got for us? 17. Uh, we'll stick with the U.S. thing. Paul Hardcastle? He was 19. Oh, that's uh, the, yeah, exactly. And uh, this isn't quite the, uh, the levels of that fantastic song from the 1980s. I just lowered the age of the average American <laughs> soldier in Vietnam, Vietnam by two right. years with my carelessness of pop history. But this could be more significant than even the average age of the American soldier in Vietnam because it is the number of memoranda that are in the dossier of intelligence produced for a private intelligence company headed by a former British, two former British intelligence officers commissioned by opponents of Donald Trump. And this intelligence dossier is now public courtesy of BuzzFeed, and it is a dossier which is being investigated by the U.S. government intelligence services, the official services such as the CIA, 
to see if the claims have any veracity. Um, now, these claims, without going into detail, assert that Donald Trump is compromised by the Russians or could be compromised by the Russians. Both. You can go into detail if you like, Scott. We're all adults here. <laughs> it's not too much detail. We don't yeah, want to lose our, exactly. family, our no. family rating, but some. Yeah, even I would blush at some of this. Uh, on questions about his financial character and about his sexual practices, including when he was in Russia, uh, for example, for the Miss Universe pageant, and also when he was trying to establish real estate deals. Now, what's interesting to me is is that uh, Trump has responded by screaming, this is fake news, and the media have sort of played into their hands because I'm not sure how many of them have actually read the dossier, which I have in detail. You have been down the rabbit hole. I have been down the rabbit hole, and let us just say that there are plausible claims that are there which are sourced. Now, this does not mean that the claims are true, because having intelligence does not mean it is always accurate intelligence. What you have to then do is try to verify and then try to analyze the intelligence. But what it says is, is that we now have this great contest in the combination of an uncertain politician with the 24-7 world of just a variety of claims upon our head, which is fake news versus intelligence, which we need to verify. And this will probably much be a defining battle. It will be a defining battle in part for Mr. Trump's future because I think, actually, the claims do have substance, uh, especially the claims that there are sex tapes, which are held by the Russians. Whoa, you're going down on the record. <clears throat> yeah, I'm on the record. Big bold moves, Scott. On the record because there are multiple, there are three Russian sources in the dossier and because this leads me to my next point, this is the challenge for journalism because a journalist named Paul Wood, who works for the BBC, did what you should do as a journalist, mm -hmm. check with sources. CIA officials say there are multiple tapes with both audio and video of a sexual nature of Trump in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And an Eastern European intelligence, head of intelligence, through a British intelligence officer, has said the Russians do have possession of a tape. Mm -hmm. So what will win out in the end? Simply shouting fake news or the responsibility of journalists as well as the intelligence services to establish reliability in this case. Yeah. We don't want to go on too much longer about this because it's, it's the number of the week. But what I will say, just uh, for, for, for the record on my own part, I am the thing I'm most concerned about about this whole story is that like the least plausible part of it, or the least plausible sounding part of it to me, which is this stuff about the sex tapes, is the bit that's gotten most of the attention. Even though Donald Trump clearly, clearly has these really serious questions to answer about a, his finances and the extent to which they uh, are entangled with those of Russian citizens, and B, whether or whether or not people who worked uh, in and around his presidential campaign had links to uh, Russian intelligence information sources during the campaign, which would be super serious if true uh, and you know, definitely needs to be investigated, whereas these sex things, A, would be at worst embarrassing but not criminal if true, and B, sound kind of sketchy, but because he can wave it away uh, as a slanderous, baseless accusation, my worry is that all this other stuff gets implicitly waved away as part of the same package, and that would be infuriating if he skated on all this, uh, th This, in my mind, much more serious stuff. Agreed, and to briefly amplify, part of the reasons why he's done the tactic of fake news is because the serious charge in the dossier and also in other intelligence is that uh, the top-secret Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court 
of the United States Mm -hmm. has uh, issued a warrant for the investigation of two Russian banks uh, to establish whether or not those banks channeled money to the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. Okay, one to keep an eye on. A little extra discussion item for you there under under, under the heading of number of the week, listeners. Um, I will race through mine, which is simply to say uh, that my number is number two. Uh, That is the number of uh, presidents that have been elected in the 21st century who had fewer popular votes than their opponents. The first, you will recall, was George W. Bush, who very nearly lost the Electoral College as well uh, in the election of 2000. Now we have Donald Trump in 2016. Um, I am as interested in American history uh, as the next person. There are all sorts of uh, charming reasons, ranging from an interest in providing due representation to small states through to straight-up racism and the need to make sure slave states didn't get underrepresented, uh, that one can uh, be fascinated by as historical artifacts if one is interested in how the Electoral College came w- w- was come up with originally. But the idea that if you pitched it now, uh, anybody would do anything other than laugh at you, uh, that this is a system. It's, it's like something that if you had a, like a, a society on the precipice of um, post-conflict collapse and you had to jerry-rig uh, like a tenuous post-conflict constitutional arrangement you would, you would come up with, not the kind of thing you would expect a solid embedded uh, democracy in good standing to have its electoral system, one whereby the person who gets fewest votes can in fact win. So, you know, the electoral college... Everyone's been saying it, but I just thought it would be worth noting once again this week. What a ridiculous uh, thing to still have in existence. Really hard to change, but let's not lose sight of that fact. David, do you have a number for us? I do. I, I toy back and forward as to which one to have, because looking at the composition of, of the Trump administration, that the numbers are very different to, to, to previous numbers of previous administrations. In fact, any previous administration in the last 50 years. That's in terms of numbers of people who have government service, number of people who served the military, uh, or number of people uh, who have been elected to anything at all. Uh, but the figure I'm going to go for is uh, zero, actually, uh, if zero is a number. Uh, and that is the, that's zero. Arabic civilization would tell us that it is. Indeed, indeed. There's a controversy over that. But, but, <laughs> but, but zero is the number I'm going to go for, uh, because zero is a number of PhDs in the new Trump administration. Now, I can hear some people saying, uh, you misunderstand that, that Trump is a project of the common people. Well, that's probably true, but actually we'd rather like to see people who are uncommon in their skills and, and, and education in the administration, uh, and that, that would be reflected in one or two PhDs at least. As he delivered his farewell speech in Chicago on January 10th, outgoing President Barack Obama gave Americans a warning that they only have a democracy to the extent they're prepared to work and fight for it. He didn't address himself directly to his successor, but the subtext wasn't too difficult to discern. Uh, The list of ways in which the prospect of a Trump presidency concerns defenders of constitutional government is almost too long to list, but to reel off a few examples. Through his business empire, he's entangled in a vast array of financial ties spanning the globe and has shown zero intention of acting meaningfully to resolve conflict of interest arising from a sitting president simultaneously harvesting cash from around the world. In his first press conference uh, for many months last week, Trump berated the press for reporting negatively on him and refused to deal with questions he didn't care for, while paid flunkies clapped from the side of the room. During the campaign, he mused aloud about the need for tougher laws to rein in the freedom of the press, the First Amendment notwithstanding. Before and after the election, he's made fantastical claims regarding voter 
voter fraud working against him during the election. This and his nomination of conservative Alabama senator, one from your uh, former home state, Scott, Jeff Sessions as attorney general, leads many to suspect the Trump administration will be happy to cooperate with state governments that seek to trim their voter rolls and place unnecessary hurdles between Democratic Party voters, especially those from minorities and the ballot box. So, if it goes without saying that those who think conservative policies are bad are in for an unhappy four years, are there grounds for deeper concern that the basic rules of the game, the norms for preserving democracy itself, won't survive four years of Trump government? Scott, how? Wha- it's one thing to have this... Um, clown car, this evil clown car like the, 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 the clowns with dark hearts uh, coming into office uh, for four years so long as everybody gets to have a do-over on whether or not this was wise come that point if we're all still here however quite another if it's going to become increasingly hard to dislodge some of these uh, these political forces because democracy changes in the, in the intervening period, how worried are you about that? I think this is the most serious challenge to the American system in my lifetime, and I would suspect for more, many years before it, um, because the system was set up to check the power of an unstable person who happened to get the presidency. That's the whole idea of why you have a congressional system, why you have a very active judicial system. And so now... Here we go. I mean, can, as we've discussed a little bit in the first item, um, can agencies within the administration contain Trump? Uh, will Congress be responsible in drawing a line with him? Uh, do we have courts, not just the Supreme Court, but all courts, that will be active in saying this, this just cannot stand? For example, on legislation that will be discriminatory uh, and roll back the advances in race relations which are not certain in the U.S., but which at least we've tried to pursue in recent decades. So, yeah, I mean, this is, is serious, but I think beyond the clown car, as you put it, there, there's, a, I think, a wider challenge beyond the system, and that is that, you know, the, the country, because partly the nature of the media, which turning itself towards attack media, and America's held together by national media, because of the nature of discourse, I think two things have happened. One is is that it simply becomes an us versus them, good versus evil, black versus white issue, in which the opportunity for dialogue or discussion just evaporates. So we find ourselves in a position where after really sustained effort, however flawed it is, to actually provide some kind of decent health care and bringing 20 million Americans into the system within days, like oh that's terrible that's awful that's social sweep it away gone and i think that leads to a second issue and that is and it just struck me having lived in this country for 30 years because i've seen it happen to a degree here but it hasn't stayed that is 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 that it's the idea of the collective you know the idea of a, a constitution the idea of a system is not that it goes out and just empowers the individual to go out and make money or say batshit crazy things and get away with it It's the idea that you have collective rights and that you have collective responsibilities. And what you have now is a sustained attack on the notion of the collective, not just through specific programs, whether it be health care, whether it be through decent education, whether it be through a responsible foreign policy, but just the very idea that we can hold an individual to account 
And that individual comes back and says, oh, this is just a, the awful liberal or whatever you want to call it or system where the media and the people, they're all against me. That's the challenge. And there is an illusion that Donald Trump spread, um, which played upon American exceptionalism, which is make America great again. But it, that was never a collective effort. That was Donald Trump's ego-driven effort. And if you're going to make America great again, you've got to get back and have a notion of collective responsibility. And I honestly do not know if we can get back to that point in the country where I was born. David, you're, 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 yeah. you, you look like you've been uh, washed over with a wave of somberness while Scott's talking. You, I assume, are equally concerned. Um, possibly more so, uh, actually. I, I think what Trump's election uh, shows is th- three areas of concern, I think. I think the election itself represents that the, 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 as, as both a, as a, the election is a product of American democracy being broken as well as the manifestation of it in the sense that actually that the lack of, of, a, of a unified discourse, the way in which people live in bubbles of, of, of news that's self-reaffirming their particular views, uh, uh, the fact that the process doesn't reach out to them, that clearly the education process is massively at fault. Otherwise, why would 61.9 million people vote for him? Uh, there really is an underst- a lack of understanding of, of a civic culture and, and what it is to, to actually understand the way in which the process works. Uh, the fact that people could be misled by this this snake oil salesman uh, it shows something deeply and fundamentally wrong with the democracy. The election itself, the process was flawed in a variety of ways. The primary process, I think, is a, is a system that no one else would want to replicate in the world. And the way in which the Republican Party cynically allowed him, uh, uh, in the end... To, 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 to be their candidate and, and, and try to, to ride his coattails, not recognising, I think, the, the, the danger that, that they were involved in doing that. The, as Adam mentioned earlier, the fact that, that he lost the popular vote, the fact that the FBI swung the momentum of the, of the election away from Hillary 10 days out from, from uh, the election date, um, this was with James Comey's uh, uh, retrospective, totally she was, unnecessary and nonsensical uh, creation of the appearance. She was she was ahead, but by double digits in the polls at that point, the momentum was with her. There was talk of, of her taking the House as well as the Senate, rather than, than whether she'd win or not. And that momentum was blunted by blunt and, and sensational headlines that had no basis in fact, but they, they changed the, the, the narrative, that they, they changed the old tenor of the debate. It's also actually problematic because he broke all the rules of, of what it is to be a liberal democracy. And in a liberal democracy, you don't promise things that are impossible. You don't you don't alienate uh, half the population on the basis of race or, or, or gender. Uh, and you don't actually challenge the process and say that if, if I don't win, I'm not going to accept the process because it would have been a, a skewed or a, or a faked process. But on going from there, uh, I have concerns of, of, of what he, his role as president has. The conflict of interest remain un, uh, uh, unresolved, and that's a major challenge to the institution of the presidency uh, that the, someone could, could actually inter- govern in the interest of his own interests, his own financial interests, rather than the interest of the country. Um, his anti-liberal instinct for authoritarianism, witnessed by his uh, uh, call for more torture, and not just torture, beyond waterboarding, but torture of the families of, of suspected terrorists, breaching all notions of the rule of law. I think, actually, what it does is it shows a, uh, a lack of understanding of basic tenets of what the Constitution says, what, what 
any liberal democracy would, would see as fundamental uh, equality before the law. Uh, he has contempt for Congress, and once, once he clashes with Congress, I see him being frustrated in, try, in trying to circumscribe uh, uh, the limitations of Congress. And my fear is, my fear is that, that if there was, for example, a, a, an excuse of, of, of a terrorist attack, uh, not necessarily the scale of 9-11, that what he would do, he would go to Congress and say, give me powers to actually have to use executive action, to actually lock up Muslims, to intern people, to mm -hmm. actually behave in fundamentally liberal ways that would fit with his fundamentally anti-liberal approach to things, which would be massively damaging to American democracy on, on an ongoing basis. Yeah. On the, on the question of the nature of the threat, um, there's one version of threat from within to democracy that I can conceive of, which is that you have uh, a sort of evil mastermind who sees clearly the uh, structure of the system within which they operate has a desire to dismantle it piece by piece and they roll out programmatically this plan to do away with one kind of constitutional order and create another one with themselves at the heart of it. Trump, there will, I, I don't doubt that one of the debates that runs and runs through this presidency will be whether or not Trump is like uh, secretly super smart and uh, has master plans or, or, or not. I tend to be very, very firmly on the not uh, front. His type of threat is just one of utter crass obliviousness to most of the principles uh, that he's violating even as he's doing so. I just get the strong impression that this is somebody who would not pass a civics 101 lesson that involved questions such as what is the Supreme Court and what are its functions or describe the relationship between presidency and Congress. He's always saying stuff about the responsibilities of Congress or courts or agency heads or various things that show a peripheral at best grasp of what the actual institutional structure of the US government even even is. And, you know, we all, I already mentioned earlier his lack of maintenance of any apparent boundary between the factual accuracy of statements and whether or not those statements are helpful or not. He regards saying a factually accurate thing that is unhelpful uh, as being the same thing as being a liar mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, and the only way to resist that, I guess, to go to go with another list of three, like there are three centers of power that have the possibility of holding this back. One is Congress, and it seems abundantly clear that for right now they've decided that even though this guy is the last person they would have picked for the job, if they can get this once-in-a-lifetime binge of hardcore conservative stuff through and he'll put his signature on it, then they're prepared to gamble the whole base capital of American democracy and institutions off the back of it. Now, until either he betrays them in some way, as he's done everyone else who's ever gone into business with him, or his popularity tanks in such a way as to make them fearful for their own political survival, it doesn't seem like we can rely on Congress to stand up to him at all. Secondly, there's the media, who have a real job on their hands, uh, because he's quite clearly going to draw no distinction between people who criticize him on the basis of entirely factually accurate reports and people who are spinning fake news and uh, and mounting political polemics so you know the institutions of 
sober, centrist, fact-based journalism are going to be under direct frontal assault over the course of the next four years, and their ability to withstand it may well be pivotal. And then the final thing is, I mean, the citizenry, basically. There comes a point when... uh, If a country is going to survive, it's not enough to say, well, the media uh, have a responsibility to put out factually accurate reports or Congress has a job to do its duty, etc. This is what Obama's point was, right? You know, the media will continue to produce factually accurate, reputable journalism to the extent that people are prepared to pay for that and read it and demand it, and Congress will you know, uh, behave appropriately and check unwarranted executive power if those who elect Congress take an interest in making them behave in that way. You know, this is clearly a moment of existential threat for American political institutions and norms, and they will probably in the end survive only if the population are prepared to mobilize to defend them. And that is a very open question, it seems to me right now. Let me pick up on that um, in part because of David's provocative comments about those who voted for Trump, in part because in a lot of the media work I've done this week, that's the question. I've got. But, but they, people voted for him. And, went, and in part because I, I get this on social media uh, from people who respond to, to my comments and posts. And that is, but, but you don't understand. You don't, you liberals or intellectuals or whatever, substitute a word, you just don't understand you know, these people who voted for Trump, and, the, and it's because you don't understand that you're going to be left behind, et cetera. And, and forgive me for getting personal, but I do understand. You know, I, I understand that in a world where it's hard to keep up with all the information, that in a world where quite often there are recessions and there are changing economies, people get angry and frustrated and uncertain. And so when people voted for Trump, they didn't do so completely because they were dupes or idiots. They wanted something better. And, you know, the orange hair siren calls. And I get that. But what I also get is that it's not just the people who voted for Trump who might feel angry or frustrated. A lot of people who didn't vote for him feel that way and have suffered economically. And what I especially get is that Trump isn't representing those people who are angry and frustrated. He's not speaking for them. Folks, he's exploiting them. He exploited that because we may get after him because he doesn't understand policy. He doesn't understand the details or anything. But he does understand how to whip up a crowd. And he does understand how to make this superficial appeal. And Adam's right that unless you call out that exploitation, And unless you stop doing, oh, you're a liberal, you're an intellectual, you're a conservative, you're this or that, until you do that, you're going to be vulnerable to this. Uh, So if you're trolling me on Facebook, I get it. But this is going to be a long, hard fight where you're going to have to overcome the fact, well, you're going to have to stop playing on his turf. And that's where American democracy faces its challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's worth... Looking at his track record, you know, there is nobody who has ever uh, entered a business deal, uh, bought a product, uh, engaged in any effort to ride Donald Trump's train to some mutually beneficial destination who has not at some point ended up uh, full 
of remorse about that because he is toxic to those who touch him. So the only question is going to be, will the people to whom he has sold the ludicrous prospectus that he is uh, a committed battler for their interests going to uh, be let down and know they've been let down and abandoned him before or after uh, the whole country has gone into the ditch. And I think that's the point I was making, uh, is that that uh, had there been uh, a, a, a wider understanding, had, for example, in America, that there'd been an institution of the BBC, which, which reports a wide range of news uh, in an impartial way, goes out of its way to, to be impartial in a way in which it, it brings different views together, and actually is massively important in terms of the civics education. Uh, had that been a ca- the, the, the case, and had they, they been able to take apart for the whole population, bit by bit, a lot of his claims and, and promises, then there would have been uh, uh, an ability on the part of large sections of the, of the electorate to actually see what he was doing, which was just telling them what, what they wanted to hear, not something that, that was at all deliverable. Uh, in a sense, a lot of the processes that, that, that have resulted in uh, unemployment in the Rust Belt are to do with automation and robotization and improvements in productivity and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. They're not to do with, with foreign trade per se. Uh, but actually, what he was allowed to do was to, was to spin a particular, as I say, as a snake oil salesman, a particular line in a particular way that had resonance partly because of a population that, that weren't educated about the, the, the wider world and about actually the political realm in which he was talking. So in a sense, actually, it, to, to regain, uh, in a sense, the credibility of, of, a, of, a, of a liberal order and, and with, its, with its reasoned debate based on, on what's practical and what, what's possible in the, in the political realm, what you need then is, is a, a wider civics education. And what's, what's lacking in America, clearly, f- from this election, is that universal uh, education at that base. Well, here's to all of that. I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poor Worldview, for links to the podcast, uh, articles, comments, the occasional clip of our media appearances, etc. And let other people know that the podcast exists. If you've listened, if you've liked it, why not share us on uh, one of your social media uh, channels. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where, where can people find you, Scott? You can find me at uh, Twitter at ScottLucas underscore EA uh, or on Facebook or on my news and analysis website, EA Worldview, which is a partner of Political Worldview at www.eaworldview.com. David, do you have a social media presence that others can locate you at? Should they be so inclined? I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at Hastings Dunn. Right, you are. I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, which is where you'll find most of my postings. I'm also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, but I recommend Facebook. That's, uh, that's where I spend most of my time hanging out. Our producer's Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back very soon. Hopefully the world will continue to exist after Friday. Uh, we hope you will be too. Bye. Bye.